You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last week, we talked about several voyages of Francis Drake. Voyages that included raids on Spanish shipping, attacks on Spanish towns, and finally, an attack on the Spanish treasure fleet as it crossed overland on the backs of a mule train. These events were known collectively as Drake's War, and they proved very successful for him. However, when he returned to England, he found that he wasn't the national hero he thought he would be. London was very tense at the time because of the international political situation as well as some of the internal politics of Elizabeth's court. So Drake decided to take a step back from all that after his report to Elizabeth and take some time for himself. He bought a house and he spent some time with his wife. He took care of some business affairs as well. He closed some accounts, he paid back several of his investors, that sort of thing. Then, being a man who wasn't comfortable at leisure, he got back on board a ship he needed to find some action for himself. He enlisted four of his ships in what was known as the Irish Adventure. Now, the Irish had been a thorn in the side of the English crown since, well, essentially since there had been an English crown, but more recently, during the reign of Henry VIII, they had become very resurgent and rebellious. He had attempted to put them down, but had been unsuccessful, as had his son and daughter. Elizabeth decided to focus her efforts on it and finish this Irish problem. So she enlisted the help of a man named Walter Devereux, who she put in charge of the Irish adventure. Devereux was an extremely talented leader of men, but he was also notoriously highly greedy and a very brutal man. His first action after taking command of the Irish campaign was to ally himself with an Irish nobleman named Brian O'Neill. Now, Brian O'Neill was loyal to Queen Elizabeth, but he was also quite powerful. He was powerful enough, in fact, that Devereux saw him as a bar to his own power. So he dealt with this problem in a scene that's just out of the pages of Game of Thrones. He threw a feast for all the soldiers of Brian O'Neill, all of the men allied to him. He fed them extremely well. He got them nice and drunk, and then, late that night, he barred the doors to the hall they were feasting in. Every man inside was massacred, except for Brian O'Neill himself, who was taken to Dublin to be executed publicly. It was after this event that Francis Drake joined forces with Walter Devereux. Devereux needed a man who had ships and was a well-versed naval commander, and at the time, Francis Drake was one of the top naval commanders in England. They needed ships because Devereux had a plan to take another island, a much smaller island that was just off the coast of Ireland, right in between Ireland and Scotland, very strategically placed and highly defensible. He planned to use this island as a base of operations for the English to make their attacks into Ireland. There was a battle, but it was fairly short. It didn't take very long for the Irish on that island to surrender. 
After they surrendered, though, the story becomes somewhat tragic. It only took about five days, but after the surrender, Walter Devereux had every man, woman, and child on this small island butchered. That was more than 500 people butchered in just four or five days. After seeing what he was capable of, Francis Drake befriended one of the retainers of Devereux, a man named Doughty, Thomas Doughty. Now, Thomas Doughty was a well-born man who was respected at Elizabeth's court and kind of a rising star in London. Now, Doughty was allied with one of Elizabeth's top advisors, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. They were close friends and saw eye to eye on a lot of issues, and they enlisted the help of Drake while they were all in Ireland to deal with this problem of Devereux. A few days later, Devereux took ill very suddenly and died shortly thereafter. For a man who was reportedly in quite good health, of course the whispers were of poison. There were a few whispers that it was Francis Drake himself that administered the poison, but most people seemed to think that it was Robert Dudley that did the deed. Regardless, after that, Francis Drake left the Irish adventure. This little triumvirate of men, Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, Francis Drake, and Doughty, had begun to concoct a plan. You see, they were all members of that young group of gentlemen, the gentlemen adventurers, and, well, Robert Dudley knew intimately the details of Elizabeth's needs and plans throughout Europe. He was able to see those plans fulfilled while making sure that he and his friends were able to profit from it. These men concocted a plan that would see Elizabeth's primary goal of pushing war with Spain furthered, while making all three of them very wealthy. It would also see Francis Drake sent back to the Americas. This is episode number nine, Master Thief of the Unknown World, part one. While Drake's return from the Americas had been at something of an unfortunate time for him politically, his return from Ireland was perfectly timed. In the intervening months, there had been a fever that gripped London, a fever for colonies and gold. They had begun to plan, and even set out on voyages, to settle the first English colonies in North America, and there was a belief that they would be able to bring back quantities of gems and gold, similar to those that Spain was bringing back about twice a year. Capitalizing on this fever for gold and exploration, there was a man named Martin Frobisher. He was a member of a group called the Company of Cathay. Cathay was what the English called China at the time. This was a group that intended to finally solve the problem of England finding a sea route to Asia. They intended to do so by finding the Northwest Passage, that mythical route through North America that would lead them to Asia and the Indies. All of this, the fever for gold, exploration, as well as the building of a new English naval presence, was due largely to one man, a man named John Dee, who was a writer, philosopher, occultist, and scientist. While Drake was in Ireland, he wrote a work titled General and Rare Memorials Pertaining to the Perfect Art of Navigation that contained a smaller work, just a paper inside it, called a Petty Royal Navy. Now, this work was intended for the people of England, more importantly, the people of London, and most importantly, John Dee wrote this work specifically for his most august reader, Queen Elizabeth herself, who read everything that John Dee published and took his counsel very seriously. Now, this trio of Drake, Dudley, and Doughty, they decided to capitalize on this fever in London and in the Queen's heart. They formulated a plan, and then they presented it to the Queen. Now, this plan is not well documented. It's shrouded in secrecy, and many of the documents pertaining to it were destroyed. However, there is a small, partial document that remains. It's burned on the edges, and most of the top is gone, but there is a small portion of the document that is still legible, which I'd like to read to you now. Quote, 
far to the northwards, as along the sailed coast, as, and then there's some missing, as of the other to find our, and then there's some more missing, to have traffic for the benefit of Her Majesty's realms. They are not under the obedience of prince, so it is the great hope of spices, drugs, cochineal, and special commodities, such as may Her Highness dominions, and also shippinge a work greatly." and gotten up as aforesaid into X day of the South Sea, if it shall be thought by the aforenamed Francis Drake to, and then there's some missing, then he is to return the same way homewards as he went out, which voyage by God's favor is to be performed in X month, and although he should spend X months in terrage upon the coast to get knowledge of the princes and countries there. End quote. Now, this document is incomplete, and the language is somewhat difficult to understand. However, basically what it's saying is that Francis Drake is going to return to the Americas. He is going to sail to the west coast of South America, an area that only the Spanish ships ever sailed in. He was going to sail there, steal as much as he could from them, and learn about the geography and culture of the area, as well as any of their defenses and settlements they might have there. This was a voyage of exploration on which Francis Drake was to engage in acts of piracy to pay not only himself but his investors back. This was how Elizabeth operated. She didn't like to spend her own coin on these naval voyages, so she allowed men who were essentially her royal navy to take part in piracy. In many ways, this was just going to be a repeat of his voyages in 1572 and 1573, except on the western coast of South America. The primary difference, however, is that he was not to attack any settlements on land. It was to be a purely naval voyage. On his previous voyages, he had lost the greatest numbers of men, munitions, and money while he had been attacking on land instead of at sea. This was to be only on the back of a ship. The other difference was that it was shrouded in so much secrecy. That is the only document that we have that proves that Elizabeth and these other men had any knowledge of what Francis Drake was about to do, but we have a host of other documents that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this voyage of Francis Drake was intended only to go to the city of Alexandria as a trading mission, which we all know now was complete nonsense. It was mere propaganda at the time so that she could prove to any of the enemies in Europe that she did not officially back the actions of Francis Drake. This is a tactic that we've seen before, but this time, Elizabeth was taking it further because she realized just how audacious this trip was going to be. She went so far as to swear all of the men who knew the truth of this voyage, that is, Thomas Doughty, even her possible lover, Robert Dudley, Francis Drake, the Lords Burgley and Cecil, she swore them to secrecy on pain of death. And then she took it a step farther. She held a secret meeting with Francis Drake. She sent all of her advisors out of the room. She even sent her guards out of the room. This was something that was almost unheard of. Queen Elizabeth was never alone with anybody in her court except for possibly her very closest friends. For her to be alone with a man who was relatively unknown to her, she must have had something deeply secretive to say to him. Unfortunately, he swore upon his life that he would never speak of what was said in that room and he never did. So we don't know exactly what Elizabeth said to him, but we do know of the actions that Francis Drake was to take, as well as the actions of a couple of other seamen that can kind of point us in the direction of what Elizabeth's orders probably were. We do know what Francis Drake asked of Elizabeth, however. 
he asked, merely for one small ship, along with all of the tackle and necessaries for running that ship that would be used basically just to carry goods. He asked for a small sum of investment. This was largely so that other investors in London would back his voyage. He also asked for a few documents that would claim falsely, from the Queen's own hand, that this voyage was bound for Alexandria, so that he could prove to anybody who asked that they were merely going to Egypt. This was actually something of a big deal, because he was asking the Queen to put down in writing something that she knew to be false. And she must have put some trust in him, because she gave him the documents that he asked for. Now, after this secret meeting, with the Queen's ship, the documents that he had asked for, and a fair amount of money invested from people all over London, he was ready to set sail. He had a small fleet. There was the 100-ton ship the Pelican, the 80-ton Elizabeth, then there was the Swan, the Marigold, and the Christopher. Those last two ships are hardly worth noting. They were essentially a ship that was there to carry any goods that they might take or need on the voyage, and a very small ship that was meant just for ferrying messages back and forth between the larger vessels. Neither of these were outfitted for war, but they were both necessary to the voyage. Then, on November 15th, 1577, the fleet set sail from Plymouth Sound. Almost immediately, they were hit by a storm. It was one of those channel storms that blew up around this time of year that were sudden and deadly. They had to cut the mainmast on two of the ships to try and save them, but even so, the marigold blew into some rocks that were there nearby. They had to sail back into Plymouth Harbor to have repairs done on the ships. However, that proved to be somewhat fortuitous, because as they were sailing back, Francis Drake noticed something. He saw that the levels of fresh water and food on board were not nearly enough for the voyage that they were undertaking. Now, the man who was responsible for this, Francis Drake lashed out at and kicked off of the voyage. Now, this upset some of the other crewmen, including one of the men who had helped plan this voyage, a member of that trio, Thomas Doughty. He was on board and a major player on this voyage, and he accused Drake of dismissing a, quote, essential member of our crew. Now, this is notable for a couple of reasons. First of all, for the people that were responsible for buying the food and water for these sorts of voyages, would frequently buy food and water of a lower quality, and sometimes not even enough of it, and pocket the rest of the money. Now, for a relatively short voyage to Alexandria, that wouldn't have been a problem, and that was what the man who was buying these victuals, as well as almost everybody else on board, thought they were doing. Nearly every member of this crew thought they were just going to Egypt for a trading voyage. But Thomas Doughty knew better. He was one of the men that had come up with the actual plan to travel to the Americas. However, he used this as an excuse to start bashing Francis Drake, talking about his irresponsibility as a captain for getting rid of this very important member of their crew. It was a purely selfish argument on his part, and he found himself gathering quite a few listeners on board. But then it's possible that Doughty didn't know the whole story. While most of the crew thought they were going to Alexandria, and Thomas Doughty, along with a few other select officers, knew they were going to the west coast of South America, Francis Drake probably knew something else. In that secret meeting with Elizabeth, we can't know for certain, but she almost certainly gave him special orders that would send him farther than any English crew had ever gone before. So you can understand why he would be upset when he found out that they didn't have nearly enough food and water on board. While their ships were being repaired, Francis Drake resupplied and made sure that they had ample provisions. However, he left plenty of space in their holds for carrying treasure. After they set out, they sailed south. To reach Alexandria, they would have had to sail around the Iberian Peninsula, 
and then through the Strait of Gibraltar to enter the Mediterranean Sea. However, they did not enter the Strait of Gibraltar. They continued on south to the Guinea coast of Africa. Now, this may have worried some of the men, but it shouldn't have been too surprising to them at this time. They all knew the reputation of Francis Drake. They knew that he was one of the most successful pirates in the world. That's why they signed up. They intended to travel south to Africa, where there were many Spanish and Portuguese ships that they could take at their will. This was something that Thomas Doughty, again, would have disapproved of. He did not think that piracy was a gentlemanly activity. However, none of the men on board any of these ships would have put up with these rumblings. They were here to take these Spanish and Portuguese ships and anything on board. Their first prize was just a few small Spanish ships, little more than fishing vessels. However, they managed to take some supplies, wine, wood, tar, ropes, that sort of thing. But it really wasn't anything to write home about. Then they came across three Portuguese caravels. These were much richer prizes. On board, they found many African riches, things that would fetch a good price either in the Caribbean or back in England. The hold was also filled with slaves, however. Now, Francis Drake no longer considered himself a slaver. After looting the ships of all of their goods, Francis Drake set these African slaves free, and then set the Portuguese back on their ships and freed them. Now this surprised a number of the men. Some of them were surprised that he would free the African slaves. Others were surprised that he would allow these Portuguese sailors to go free. But this early in the voyage, Francis Drake didn't want to make any more enemies than necessary. He had a long way to go after this first initial encounter. However, after taking these Portuguese caravels, the men thought that they would be traveling back north towards the Strait of Gibraltar. But they didn't. The fleet turned west and headed toward the Cape Verde Islands. When they neared their first island, they were met with cannon fire. Word of the English pirates had fled before them, and they were not welcomed into port. However, there was a ship outside of the range of cannon fire that Francis Drake's crew managed to take. It was called the Santa Maria. This ship carried the most valuable treasure that they had found so far. Now, it held plenty of valuables and goods, but that wasn't what was so important. The captain of the ship was a very experienced Portuguese pilot, a man named Nunez de Silva. De Silva had a rich trove of maps that he had made and that others had made of the South American coast, as well as in his head an intimate knowledge of the eastern coast of Brazil. Now, Drake told De Silva that they were going to take the Santa Maria with them, along with he and his crew. However, when they reached Brazil, they were going to be set free. Drake needed time to study his maps along the voyage of the Atlantic. But after leaving the Cape Verde Islands, the men on board realized that they were absolutely not heading to Alexandria, that this was going to be a voyage heading to the Americas. Now, most of these men had told their wives and families that they would be gone a few weeks, maybe a couple of months at best. Alexandria was not that far away, respectively. But they realized that they were going to be gone a much longer period of time. So on every crew, on every ship in the fleet, discord began to swirl. It was a delicate balancing act for Drake, along with the other captains on the other ships who had to keep the men on board happy while keeping them in line. And this was when Doughty really began preaching against Francis Drake and began growing a following and sowing the seeds of what would eventually turn to his plans for mutiny. He spoke of the injustice of this voyage, of the men being lied to. He spoke of the arrogance of Drake and the other captains. 
He tried to paint himself as a man who was just another member of the crew, one of these men who had been lied to by Drake and the other captains, despite the fact that he knew of these plans, in fact helped create these plans from the outset to travel to the Americas. This was a clear attempt to undermine Drake's authority and bolster his own on this voyage. And then he tried a new tactic. As his followers grew, Doughty was becoming ever bolder. So after taking the Santa Maria, Doughty accused Francis Drake's younger brother, Thomas, of stealing from the loot that they had taken from the Maria that was to go into a communal pot and put it in his own possessions. Now this enraged Francis Drake, and it's pretty understandable why. After questioning his brother and Doughty and the other men on board, a priest named Francis Fletcher claimed that it was in fact Doughty who had been stealing these goods and not Thomas Drake. Now Fletcher was not on Francis Drake's side. He was a priest, a man who was known to be completely honest. So for him to make this testimony against Doughty, well, it was almost unrefutable proof. But when Francis Drake and some of the other officers searched Doughty's cabin, they found absolutely unrefutable proof. They found Portuguese goods in his own personal holdings. Now, Doughty claimed that these were gifts given to him from Portuguese sailors in order to gain themselves preferential treatment, but Drake saw through this immediately. He knew that while Doughty had been stealing from the goods taken for the communal use of the crew, he had tried to blame it on Thomas Drake's brother to undermine the authority of both of the Drakes. So Drake decided to stay on board the Santa Maria, which he rechristened the Mary. It had some of the best provisions in the fleet, as well as the many maps and charts and Portuguese sailors that he needed to study while they crossed the Atlantic. And he sent Doughty back to the flagship of the fleet, the Pelican, and made him the captain there. Now, this was little more than a band-aid for the situation. It kept Doughty's pride intact, but it stopped a confrontation between Doughty and Drake, which might have ended in blood. But it also emboldened Doughty. He saw himself now as the captain of the flagship of the fleet, undeniably the man in charge of this voyage. And he began to grow ever more egotistical, even to the point of what you might call near madness. He claimed to the men on board the Pelican that he could bring down, quote, the devil to bear down upon the ship's company, end quote, and then he threatened them with what he called his dark witchcraft. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Pat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Dowdy was a nobleman who was well-born and well-educated, and he really looked down on those underneath him, especially men like Francis Drake. He saw Francis Drake as no better than any other common mariner on board, and he couldn't understand why he and Francis Drake were to share command at an equal level. Even worse, it upset him that the men on board respected and admired Francis Drake as one of them who had risen to prominence and was one of the best among them, and they looked at Doughty as just some sort of nobleman interloper who knew nothing about being on board a ship. They treated him with absolutely zero respect, and this enraged him. So he decided to take the crew of the Pelican and make them live in fear of him as a dark sorcerer. But fear can only go so far. The men truly loved Francis Drake, and while the crew of the Pelican was too afraid to report what Doughty was doing, Francis Drake was already suspicious of his actions and kept a close eye on him. Most of the reports from the Pelican were of Doughty acknowledging that Francis Drake was the leader of this voyage. However, Francis Drake was receiving secret reports that this was not the case. And then, for some reason... Thomas Doughty himself sent Francis Drake a missive that was mysterious and threatening and said that the voyage would, quote, have more need of me than I shall have of the voyage, end quote. So Francis Drake decided it was time to take action. He could no longer ignore the problem with Doughty. So he sent his trumpeter on board one of the smaller boats over to the Pelican to collect Doughty. Now, when the trumpeter got there, the, the accounts are a little jumbled. Some historians consider what followed as a violent action. He was held down by the crewmen and beaten. Others see this as an old-time tradition among sailors, that when they see a friend that they have not seen in some months at sea, they greet him with a friendly spanking where all the mariners hold him down and give him one swat on the bottom. Regardless, Dowdy decided to take part in what was either a friendly tradition or a violent interaction. But when he swatted this trumpeter on the bottom, the trumpeter freaked out. He said, quote, God wounds, Dowdy, that dost thou mean use this familiarity with me, considering thou art not the general's friend. End quote. So this trumpeter gave Dowdy the message that he was to go meet with Francis Drake aboard the Mary. Now, at first, Doughty refused, and the trumpeter brought that news to Francis Drake. But when Drake realized that Doughty was not going to come meet with him, he sailed his ship around to go meet with the Pelican in a stance meant for naval combat, and Drake was a much better sea commander than anybody on board the other ship. So he demanded that Doughty come meet with him, and he really had no option but to obey. In a small rowboat, Doughty went over to the Mary and he began to climb the ladder to board her. But before he was allowed to climb over the rigging, Francis Drake was standing there, barring his way. And he said, quote, Stay there, Thomas Doughty, for I must send you to another place. End quote. Doughty was sent back to the rowboat, and then he was sent over to the Swan, which was no more than a supply ship. Now, he was officially given command of the Swan. He was the captain of the smallest ship in the fleet. 
However, while he was officially given command, it was made very clear to him that he was not captain of that ship. He was to be put under guard and was little more than a prisoner. Drake needed to do this to buy himself the peace that he needed to cross the Atlantic, and that crossing went mostly pretty smoothly. He had time to study the maps and the charts that De Silva had in his possession on board the Mary. He began to learn more and more about the coastline of Brazil and the rest of South America. He also had something of the writings of Ferdinand Magellan, as well as the accounts of the other mariners on board Ferdinand Magellan's voyage that had survived. He was clearly learning about what the rest of his voyage was going to entail. Now, the fact that he had on board these writings of Magellan and these other mariners is somewhat significant, but not tremendously so. We still don't know officially what Drake was supposed to be doing on this voyage. You see, he knew he was going to be going through the Straits of Magellan, and Magellan had been the first man to do so, so he wanted these initial accounts. Magellan also went much further on his voyage, but we don't know as yet if Francis Drake was intending to follow in Magellan's footsteps. As they neared the coast of South America, it became clear to that Portuguese pilot, De Silva, that while his crew was going to be set free, he was going to be forced to stay on with the English pirates. His knowledge was just too valuable. And things weren't going well aboard the Swan, either. Thomas Doughty and the other noblemen that were part of his little group, well, they were being fed half rations. The men who were supposed to be officially in charge of this vessel were being fed half as much as a common crewman, while the actual captain, the man who was master of that ship, was eating with the crew and kept these noblemen in a state of isolation. Now, when Doughty complained about the half-rations to the ship's master, the man who was essentially his jailer, the man said that he would give him, quote, something to eat that falls from my tail, end quote. This, obviously, enraged the nobleman Doughty, and he struck the master of the vessel. Now, the master struck him back. They came to blows, but while this wasn't something that could be called mutiny, it became quickly apparent that this small group of noblemen were no match for a large group of seasoned English West Country mariners. So they quickly backed down and shut up. But that didn't mean that Doughty had stopped plotting. Now, when they finally reached sight of the coast of South America, Drake ordered that they continued sailing south. All of the Portuguese settlements along the coast had been warned of Drake's coming, and there was a Portuguese warship, a man of war, in every harbor that awaited them. So they stayed out of sight of the coastline and sailed south until they were too far from any Portuguese settlements to be in any danger. It took several days for them to find a harbor that was suitable to anchor in, but finally they did. However, the Swan the ship that Doughty was on, was nowhere to be seen. It had become lost in a storm, so Francis Drake had to go out on the Mary to find her and bring her into the harbor. He let it be known to some of the other officers and crewmen that Drake himself attributed the fact that the Swan had become lost to Doughty's dark and vile magics. Now this seems to me and to many historians as nothing more than a little bit of propaganda. Drake probably didn't believe that Doughty was in fact a dark sorcerer, but Doughty had begun spreading that rumor himself, so Drake decided to use his own lies against him to make the men believe that while he was, yes, in fact a dark sorcerer, Francis Drake, the master of the voyage, knew of it and had him well in hand. And in fact, Drake did have him well in hand. He had a plan to deal with Doughty, but it was still a little bit early and he needed more time and a bit more evidence. While they were in harbor, Drake ordered the swan disassembled. 
He said to take all of the metal fittings from the swan, all of the supplies on board, and anything that the swan carried, and put it on board the other ships. And then he ordered the ship burned. Now, Doughty was unhappy about this, as this was his last vestige of command. While he wasn't actually in command, he could pretend that he was captain of that vessel. And for Drake to have this vessel burned, it showed that he was no more than a prisoner. So Doughty refused to leave the Swan. He said that he was going to stay on board his ship. But Drake responded by saying that if he would not leave, he should be hoisted aboard along with the ship's tackle. So Doughty backed down and he climbed on board the Maria. But instead of staying quiet, he claimed to all the men that Drake did not have their best interests at heart, and that he, Doughty, had lost all faith in Drake's actions. So Drake lost his temper and struck Doughty across the brow, and then ordered him tied to the mainmast, along with his other men, something that the crew of the Swan, who was already on board the Mary, were happy to do, having had put up with Doughty and his nonsense for the entire crossing of the Atlantic Ocean. So, after they cut him free, but before they set sail, Drake ordered Doughty aboard the Christopher, the next smallest ship in the fleet. And he sent the captain of the Christopher a message, saying that he was sending them, quote, a very bad couple of men. And he continues, the which he did not know how to carry along with him. Thomas Doughty is a conjurer, a seditious fellow, and his brother, a witch, a poisoner, and such a one as the world can judge of. I cannot tell from whence he came, but from the devil, I think." End quote. While these noblemen were kept on board, under guard, not allowed to leave the ship, nearly every other crewman, including all of the officers and Drake himself, went ashore where they met a tribe of natives. Now this tribe was friendly and met them with a very warm welcome. The English had many goods that this tribe, which lived apparently a very simple life, did not. The English played music for the tribe to which all of the young women danced, which delighted the Englishmen. So the natives threw them a feast, and the English feasted for days on seal meat and their local alcohol, and even the local women. It appears that this tribe didn't have any belief in the institution of marriage, and they were allowed to couple freely with any English sailor that they took a shine to. Now this tribe didn't have much to trade in return, but the English enjoyed their time with them so much that they left them gifts of very rich value. Even Francis Drake, giving a man who had taken a liking to his fancy red velvet cap, he gave him that hat to wear, just out of the kindness of his heart. Now this may have been something further that Francis Drake was doing to discredit Doughty. While Doughty had to be on board and under guard, Francis Drake saw that his men were having the time of their lives in this tropical paradise, and that he himself was a giving and friendly man to these natives. Then, after leaving port, again, the ship that Doughty was on, the Christopher, became separated from the fleet. Now, there's no evidence to support it, but it seems to me that Francis Drake was building a very solid case against Thomas Doughty, so he may have sailed faster than the smallest ship in the fleet, the Christopher, could follow. Regardless, when they reached their next port, their next anchorage, he ordered the Christopher dismantled, all of its cargo taken off, and the ship burned. Drake claimed that he believed that any ship that had had Doughty aboard was infected by his dark sorceress magic, so they needed to be destroyed. Now this became somewhat worrying to the men, I imagine, because if Doughty was to stay with them and they had to keep burning any boat that Doughty was aboard quickly, they were going to run out of ships. But Drake knew better. Just a few days after burning the Christopher, the fleet arrived 
at Port St. Julian. Port St. Julian was the location where on his historic voyage 58 years before Francis Drake's, Ferdinand Magellan decided to spend the winter. It was also the location of an event known as the Easter Mutiny, and where Ferdinand Magellan put the prime mutineer, a man named Luis Mendoza, on trial. In his book, Over the Edge of the World, Lawrence Bergreen covers the aftermath of that mutiny. I'd like to read from that book about the aftermath of the mutiny. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but it's also a fairly graphic one, so if there are any kids listening, you might want to skip ahead a couple of minutes. Quote, now that the Easter Mutiny was finally at an end, Magellan meted out punishment to the guilty parties. The mutineers were about to discover that defying Magellan was even more perilous than the most ferocious storm at sea. To begin, Magellan introduced one of his men to read an indictment of Mendoza as a traitor. The captain general then ordered his men to draw and quarter Mendoza's body. This complicated and grotesque procedure usually began with hanging the victim, then cutting him down while he was only partially strangled. The executioner, or an assistant, would make an incision in the victim's abdomen, remove his intestines, and, incredibly, burn them in front of the half-dead victim. When he finally expired, his head and limbs were severed from his body, parboiled with herbs to preserve them and repel birds, and finally displayed to the public. In a variation, the victim's arms and legs were attached to four horses, who were made to walk in opposite directions, slowly tearing the victim's limbs from his body. Magellan combined elements of both methods. Mendoza was secured to the flagship's deck, with ropes running from his wrists and ankles to the capstans, which consisted of a cable wound around a cylinder to hoist or move heavy objects. On cue, sailors pressed levers to rotate the capstan's drum, which contained sockets to check its backward movement. Bit by bit, the pressure applied to the capstans ripped Mendoza's lifeless body to pieces. Magellan directed that the quartered remains be spitted and displayed as a warning of exactly how traitors would be treated. The preserved body parts of Luis de Mendoza remained visible, an indelible lesson concerning the consequences of mutiny. End quote. When the fleet of Francis Drake arrived at Port St. Julian, there was a ghostly memorial to that event. Exactly what was there remains disputed. It's clear that there was a scaffold that Magellan had built, still standing. Some of the sailors claimed that Mendoza's armor was still there, and still others claimed that the bleached remains of Mendoza were still on display. Now, I find that somewhat hard to believe, but it definitely leaves an impression. Drake had read about poor St. Julian in the writings of Magellan. He knew what had happened here, and he suspected that there would be some evidence left. It was here that Francis Drake had been waiting for. However, he was forced to wait to make his move. As soon as they landed, a group of hostile natives attacked the fleet, and although the natives were repelled, several of the men in Francis Drake's command were killed. Now, Drake saw these men buried with full honors, and then he claimed that this attack was only further evidence of Doughty's witchcraft. So Drake established a court in view of the scaffold of Magellan. Doughty claimed that Drake had no authority to try him here, and strictly speaking, he was actually right. Now, an official naval captain in the Royal Navy had the right to try and marry people at sea. However, Francis Drake was not an official naval captain. While Elizabeth had backed this voyage, it was done in extreme secrecy, so there was no documentation that Francis Drake had the right to try a man like Doughty. Now, Drake argued that the Queen had backed the voyage with 1,000 crowns, along with very august names like Hatton, Walsingham, and Leicester. 
Now these men held a lot of weight to the men on this voyage, and beyond that, Francis Drake argued that the queen had given him this authority directly, and told his men, quote, Lo, my masters, what this fellow hath done. God will have his treacheries all known, for her majesty gave me special commandment that of all my men Lord Treasurer should not know it, but to see his own mouth hath betrayed him. End quote. Arguing that Francis Drake had been given this command and these rights by Queen Elizabeth without the knowledge of Thomas Doughty. So the trial commenced. Now, Doughty was trained as a lawyer. He was very good at arguing his case, and apparently he did so with great eloquence, the kind of eloquence known only to a gentleman of Elizabethan England. However, Drake appealed to the men's baser desires. Doughty was a man who didn't approve of piracy, and while the Queen remained removed from those issues, Drake claimed that Doughty would attempt to take command and stop any piratical actions, keeping the men from making their share of the booty. These sailors had signed up with Drake, knowing his reputation, expecting to take as much Spanish treasure as possible. They had not known where the voyage would take them, but they knew that they were going to wind up rich men. Drake still had to play his cards carefully, though, and he continued his argument, quote, And now, my masters, consider what a great voyage we are like to make. The like was never made out of England, for by the same, the worst in this fleet shall become a gentleman. And if this voyage go not forward, which I cannot see how possible it should be if the man live, what a reproach it will be, not only unto our country, but especially unto us, the very simplest here may consider of. Therefore, my masters, they that think this man worthy to die, let them with me hold up their hands." End quote. Drake had argued that if they let Doughty live, the voyage would turn back to England. They would not take any more Spanish treasure. They would not fulfill the orders of the queen. Not only would they disappoint the queen and her court, these men would lose out on a fortune that they would have taken in Spanish gold and treasure. Beyond that, Drake knew that they were about to embark on a voyage that would be written about in history books for the rest of time. These men would have their names remembered, and if they did not execute Doughty on this beach, they would not go through with that voyage. He was telling them that this was a historic event, and they had a choice right here and right now whether or not to continue. The men unanimously voted to execute Thomas Doughty. In the end... Doughty met his fate bravely. You might say, like an Elizabethan English gentleman would. He chose to die by the axe. He and Drake shared a sacrament, and then shared a few words that were neither heard nor recorded. Doughty begged for forgiveness, both from the men on the voyage and from God. And then, with one swing, his head was removed. Drake held his head aloft. It was the head of a mutineer, but Drake swore that there would be no further reprisals, either against Doughty's companions or his brother. During the trial, Drake had stirred the men's patriotism. He had stirred their lust for riches and their hatred of the Spanish. He had stirred, even further, their desire to undertake what would be the greatest voyage that England had ever known. Before setting sail, they burned the Mary. That was the last ship that had been touched by Thomas Doughty. It was also a ship that was unlikely to make it through the Strait of Magellan. And then on August 17th, 1578, a full ten months after leaving England, they set sail again. The three ships left in the fleet, the Pelican, the Elizabeth, and the Marigold, in three days' time, reached what's called the Cape of Virgins. This was the entrance to the Strait of Magellan. 
and there stood a series of massive stone pillars. The men described this place solemnly, quote, full of black stars, against which the sea beating showed, as it were, the sproutings of whales, end quote. This was a place that was alien to the men on board this English fleet. They'd never seen anything like it. And Drake realized that this was something of a historic moment that these men would remember for the rest of their lives. So he chose this as a time to commence with the ceremony. He ordered every ship in the fleet to strike its top sails in honor of Queen Elizabeth, and then commenced with a ceremony that's not really recorded in the histories, but we can be fairly certain that the men prayed. And then what we know is that Francis Drake, to help heal any wounds that were still left after the execution of Thomas Doughty, renamed his flagship. It had been the Pelican, and it was rechristened the Golden Hind. The Golden Hind was the sigil of a man named Christopher Hatton, who was a very close friend and a patron of Doughty. But he was still a patron of the voyage and a man that many of the men on board looked up to. So naming his ship the Golden Hind showed that this voyage still held the ideals that it had set out with when Thomas Doughty was still in his right mind. After the ceremony, the men dropped their topsails back down, and the winds began to push them towards the Strait of Magellan. But that's going to do it for this week. This has already been a fairly long story, and while I wanted to cover this entire voyage of Francis Drake in a single episode, we're only about halfway there, and there's still a lot to cover. Francis Drake is only getting started. Next week, Francis Drake will navigate the Strait of Magellan and emerge into a world that no Englishman had ever seen before. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. This podcast has focused pretty strongly on Francis Drake for the past few weeks, and there have been a lot of big events happening in England. We're going to get into those events as soon as Francis Drake returns to England. This is going to be a big deal that in a very real way is going to influence the worldview and the actions of the 18th century pirates of the Caribbean. I'm still working on a couple of those special episodes, and I hope to have some news about them out on either Twitter or Facebook in the next few days, so keep your eyes open for it. And if you're not either following us on Facebook or Twitter, why don't you go ahead and do so? Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you enjoy it, why not go on over and check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website? If you haven't been there, that's piratehistorypodcast.com. We've got a bunch of extra maps and some supplemental information to the episode, as well as a button at which you can donate to the episode, which we really appreciate. Several of you have taken advantage of that over the last few weeks, and we really appreciate it. Donations definitely help keep the podcast afloat. We also appreciate anybody who will leave a review or a rating, either at iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. It really helps keep the podcast noticed. Most of all, thanks everybody for listening.
time has come now to bid him goodbye. For at first light this morn, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.